Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with Amy Walter. What a year this week has been. We have to keep our eye on the ball. And the eye on the ball is to reclaim the soul of this country. Uh, It's going to be pretty close. We may be up by a few. Biden may be up by a few. Uh, But I think we go forward uh, basically neck and neck. Joe Biden, the one-time frontrunner turned underdog, is now the frontrunner again. While Bernie Sanders, the one-time underdog turned frontrunner, is once again in the fight for his political survival. It's back to the future, folks, truly. And then, post-Super Tuesday, this happened. Of Iowa passed that a nomination just no longer existed. And I will not be our party's nominee. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight. Elizabeth Warren hasn't endorsed yet, at least not at the time of this recording. But the fact that the Democratic candidates who shared the so-called moderate lane with Biden, like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, coalesced around Biden so quickly and so decisively was not only shocking, but also amazingly effective. On Super Tuesday, Biden won 10 states to Sanders' four, thanks in large part to his success among voters who made their decision to vote at the last minute. For his part, Bernie Sanders is ready for the coming fight with Biden, and he's not pulling any punches. Does anyone seriously believe that a president backed by the corporate world is going to bring about the changes in this country that working families desperately need? So what does this mean for Democrats? And will the next phase of this primary undermine any attempt at keeping the party together under that big tent? We spoke to some people who have opinions on that. I think the Democratic Party is... Everyday working class people in this country who just want to have our our basic needs met. Mainly the only game in town for women of color. Represents the working men and women of the United States. I think the Democratic Party is a much more diverse group of people than the Republican Party. How do I define the Democratic Party? Different demographic, racial groups. You know, it's people like me, you know, young people of color. You know, labor unions, folks who haven't gone to college all across the country. Inclusion in terms of communities of color. Addressing all the crises we face with progressive platforms like like a Green New Deal whole tapestry of different groups and people, which I think is a very big benefit to us. We set out to understand how various constituencies are feeling now that the race has narrowed to two. The Democratic Party is right now in the midst of a significant battle about its identity. That's Amy Allison, founder and president of She the People. If you think about the top two people who have emerged as front runners in the Democratic Party primary, there's one candidate, Bernie Sanders, who's offering to fight the battle against the Democratic Party establishment and Trump and the other who literally comes from uh, the middle of the centrist uh, wing of the Democratic Party, promising to strengthen it uh, as he you know, envisions it and then take on Trump. And uh, those are very different conceptions of what the Democratic Party could be uh, for the millions of you know, regular people out there. When this race started, there were over 20 candidates, and people were trying to figure out how to understand this race. Political analysts like to talk about candidates in terms of lanes, but seeing those lanes was difficult with such a crowded field. 
In fact, lanes were less important this year, specifically ideological lanes. From the very beginning, Democrats had been telling reporters, pollsters, focus groups that the most important issue in the Democratic primary was Donald Trump. Specifically, how do Democrats beat him? Other issues and policies and personalities were pushed to the side. I was told at the beginning of this whole undertaking that there are two lanes, a progressive lane that Bernie Sanders is the incumbent for and a moderate lane that Joe Biden is the incumbent for. And there's no room for anyone else in this. I thought that wasn't right, but evidently I was wrong. So there you have it. My name is Domingo Garcia. I'm the national president of LULAC. LULAC is the League of United Latin American Citizens, the nation's oldest and largest Latino civil rights organization. What we're looking for is who's going to be the strongest candidate and that will deliver on the promises made uh, to the Latino community and also be able to be Trump uh, in November. At the end of the day, uh, the Trump administration's policies have been pretty catastrophic for many Latino families, uh, especially um, in terms of immigration and education. I think for most people in the mainstream of the Democratic Party, it's been a really good week. That's Lene Erickson from Third Way, a center-left think tank. She's one of many Democrats who say Biden is the safe choice, the choice that could get Democrats as close as possible to a repeat of the 2018 wins for the party. Last week and the week before were a little touch and go because it seemed like the kind of Twitter activists were really driving the conversation. And now we've seen the Democratic primary electorate weigh in and really learned that Twitter is not representative of what that primary electorate thinks. So going forward, I think, you know, we're all hoping that we can bring together a broad coalition across the party because all of us want to beat Donald Trump. But we think we have a better chance to do it with someone who represents a majority of the party, not just the vocal extreme. I mean, I think what we saw in 2018 is the Democrats are incredibly energized to beat Donald Trump. And it wasn't about putting forth extreme candidates that got people excited and to turn out. It was about putting forth candidates that really spoke to a broad coalition of people and talked about the issues they really care about, not about revolution, but about making real change in people's lives. That sounds a lot like Joe Biden does right now. He is really echoing the messages that won the blue wave in 2018. But one big question that still has a lot of Democrats worried is this. Can voters get excited enough about Biden? I would hope Democrats don't make the same mistake they made in 2016, going with a candidate that's sort of comfortable, established, but does not excite the base, does not expand the base. And I'm, I'm just kind of concerned that Biden is, again, that candidate. He's somebody that's a well-known quantity, but there's no excitement. You know, if you go to a Biden rally, it's kind of a, uh, a snooze. You go to a birdie rally and it's a, it's a you feel like you're at a Friday night football game rally. Um, and that's the difference. And so you need somebody who can excite the base, expand the base, uh, get more Latinos to vote, get more younger people to vote. That's the only way I think you can defeat Trump. Trump has a fired up base also. You go to a Trump rally, it's also full of kind of a buzz out there. And he has his base ready to go vote. And the Democrats need to have somebody that can counter that. If we have somebody who is just sort of going through the motions, then we could lose an election again and Trump could be reelected for another four years. I don't think Biden could beat Trump. Araceli Jimenez is also concerned about Biden's appeal, especially to younger voters. 
She's the deputy communications director for the Sunrise Movement, a movement of young people who are fighting to stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. Biden is um, not doing well with really key, key demographics to, to win. You know, he's not doing well with young people. In fact, when young people try to, you know, talk to him at at fundraisers and at campaign events, when we when, you know, even Sunrise members ourselves have tried to ask him about, um, you know, his plan to stop the climate crisis, his plan to revitalize our economy with green jobs. He has, um, quite frankly, he's run away from us. And so unless there is a drastic, drastic shift in his um, in his campaign, I highly, highly doubt that Joe Biden will be able to to build the winning coalition that he'll need to defeat Trump. The Sanders argument for electability is simple. Only he can turn out younger voters and especially the younger voters of color who stayed home in 2016. But if that's the case, the exit polling doesn't support evidence of this surge of young voters into the primaries. But whoever will try to beat Trump, one thing's for sure, he, yes, he, will be a he. I mean, we went from a year ago having the most diverse set of candidates running for president to this becoming a contest between two white guys in their 70s. I have to admit I'm disappointed. That's Amy Allison from She the People again. The Democratic Party, that party that counts on women, people of color, and young people for votes, has settled on two old white guys. But to win in November, that guy is going to need a lot of women and women of color to come out and vote. Women of color are not a monolith, and there are a lot of gradations and different communities comprised in the group. So it is incontrovertible that black women, particularly those over 35, voted for Joe Biden, first in South Carolina and then in many of the southern states and in, uh, and in Texas, and really changed the trajectory of, of the primary from how it was looking in Iowa, New Hampshire, till what it's looking like after Super Tuesday. And likewise, uh, the Latinas who organized in Nevada as an early state and those who have come to the polls in California and Texas also are uh, shaping the fortunes of Bernie Sanders. I think for us moving forward, we have got to find our points of unity. There is no scenario in which women of color, black and brown women, Asian American women are left out of the calculation because we're so important to the success in winning in November. Lene Erickson, who we heard from a minute ago, the one who thinks Biden is the right choice, was also thinking about how women factor into all of this. You know, I just saw a poll that was pretty striking. I think we all think suburban women are a big opportunity for Democrats at this point because they really don't like Donald Trump. And if you look at the head-to-heads of Trump against a bunch of Democratic candidates, what you see is suburban women go for Democrats by 10 points with every single candidate except for Sanders. With Sanders, they're tied. And that is a huge red flag. We cannot win in November if suburban women are split between Donald Trump and our nominee. Did you catch that? She said, our nominee. 
not Biden, not Sanders, but whoever can take on Trump. That priority is consistent across the board. I think President Trump is an existential threat to this country, and I will vote for a paper bag against Donald Trump. And absolutely, if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, I'll knock doors. I'll put a Sanders sign in my yard. At the end of the day, we need to defeat Trump. The stakes are very high. I think the majority of Latinos as well as Democrats will support whoever the Democratic nominee is. Ultimately, I think particularly women of color, are going to get behind the nominee. We have to unite at the polls in November, no matter what, to defeat fascism and racism. This election in November must be a referendum on on white supremacy in this country. It must be a referendum on everything that, that Trump has stood for. Well, we've spent the better part of the last year trying to figure out this whole primary, and in many ways, we're right back to where we started. Now, next week, six states are voting. The biggest prize for that day is Michigan with its 125 delegates. In 2016, Sanders scored an upset victory over Hillary Clinton there. And, of course, he's hoping he can do that again this year. But, as we saw earlier this week, in Michigan, Democratic elected officials, especially from the moderate wing of the party, have rallied behind Biden. By the end of this week, he had picked up endorsements from Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and two freshman congresswomen who flipped red seats blue in 2018. Thanks to Lene Erickson of Third Way, Domingo Garcia of LULAC, Amy Allison of She the People, and Araceli Jimenez from Sunrise Movement for weighing in. And hey, you had a lot to say about this dramatic week in the 2020 Democratic primary. Hi, I'm Marita from Vestal, New York. I'm sad but glad this is whittling down. I think it's cost too much money. I would very much have preferred a woman uh, running for president, but I'm happy that we can make some choices and get on with promoting a more middle-of-the-road candidate. Hi, my name is Susan, and I live in Ripon, Wisconsin. It's got to be blue no matter who. My name is Mark Charlotte from Mendota Heights, Minnesota. I'm glad that it's now down to a two-person race. The people have spoken. We should let the process continue until the convention. Hi, my name's Elise from Westchester. I'm intensely frustrated. It feels like we've gone back to the 1950s with two old white men as our only options. Hi, this is Julie from Sarasota, Florida. The race down to Biden and Sanders, I don't think either one are going to be able to beat Trump, unfortunately. Well, the results for Super Tuesday surprised just about everybody in the political world. Many of us expected the outcome to provide, well, really more of a muddled mess. But the voters in those 14 states actually turned in a decisive decision. And with the race down to just two viable candidates, we can now focus more clearly on the math. Namely, how likely it is for either candidate to hit the magic number of delegates needed to get the nomination. And there's no one who understands the math better than my Cook Political Report colleague, David Wasserman. David, thanks for coming in. Welcome. It's always a pleasure, Amy. Let's start with the really important state that's still counting ballots, and that's California. And recently, Bernie Sanders was on TV with Rachel Maddow, and he said that at the end of the California count, that he thinks that he'll be a little bit ahead of Joe Biden. Do you think that could be the case? Not in the overall delegate count. That's not a realistic outcome at this point. Yes, California is still counting ballots. But what we see is that in the ballots that have been counted since the 
uh, initial count at 3 a.m. on election night, uh, Joe Biden has actually narrowed the percentage margin of Sanders's victory in California, um, not not dramatically, but uh, the votes that we've seen come in since have been roughly even between the two of them. And keep in mind that Biden is going to keep picking up delegates as results are finalized in Super Tuesday states he won, because it takes some time to sort out the math at the congressional district level where there are set numbers of delegates at stake. And that depends on the final certified results in each state. So let's go through the next couple of weeks here. Obviously, the Sanders campaign is focusing a lot on Michigan, but we know that states that look like Michigan, like Pennsylvania and Ohio, are also still on the calendar. Can he make up for the delegates he lacks by just winning in those states? Theoretically, yes. But the reality is those states uh, tend not to have uh, a, a big early vote, and there wasn't, uh, there weren't votes cast there uh, before Sanders' uh, lead in the national polling evaporated. And if you were to superimpose, uh, you know, the demographic patterns that we saw in places like Virginia, uh, in Minnesota, in Maine, in North Carolina, onto this the next set of states then Joe Biden would not just be winning states like Michigan and Ohio, he would be cruising to victory in those states. And then when you consider what's on the map on March 10th, Mississippi, an overwhelmingly African-American Democratic electorate where uh, the state Senate Democratic Caucus unanimously endorsed Joe Biden, Missouri, another state with a a sizable African-American share of the Democratic primary vote. These are places where Biden is likely to do very, very well unless there's a seismic shift in the race. And then, of course, you get to Florida on uh, March 17th. And we, we've seen polling out of Florida that, that gives Joe Biden a lead in the 40s. So uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult for Bernie Sanders to overcome that. The other question um, that we had been talking a lot about before Super Tuesday, Dave, was the possibility of a contested convention. Does that now look like that is not going to happen? This is something we had been talking about all year that Democrats had really feared, the the potential that uh, the delegates would be split in so many different directions that no one would be able to win a majority. And those fears have subsided because not only uh, did uh, Biden and Sanders uh, do very well relative to the other candidates, but Warren and Bloomberg failed to hit viability thresholds uh, of 15% in some of the Mm. largest states on the map, Texas and California. And that meant that they were shut out of delegates on a statewide basis in those places. And their delegate counts are much lower than they had been hoping. And of course, they dropped out of the race. So that makes it much less likely now that it's a one-on-one that the uh, eventual leader uh, arrives at the convention with only a plurality of delegates, not a majority. So our dreams of covering a contested convention are dashed, Dave. (laughs) Well, it seems like every four years, the political uh, junkies all want uh, want to see this uh, go to a dramatic convention. Of course, the most dramatic convention on the Democratic side was probably 1924 that took 103 ballots to nominate John W. Davis from West Virginia. But Uh, I don't think we're on track for that kind of fun this year. 
<laughs> well, David Wasserman, House Editor for the Cook Political Report, thanks again for coming in and breaking this all down for us. Thanks so much, Amy. While all the attention has been on the fight happening on the Democratic side, President Trump certainly hasn't been sitting on the sidelines. I think in a certain way, Bernie would be tougher because he's got a base. It's a much smaller base than my base. I think a lot of my people are here because, and I did nothing to do that, but we have a lot of support in Pennsylvania. And I think we have a lot of support everywhere. Look at the rallies. The Trump campaign is sort of pressing their advantage. That's Alex Eisenstadt, national political reporter at Politico. They're raising tons of money to spend this summer, this fall. They are running tons of digital advertisements. They are banking really important data. And they're doing the kinds of things that they think are going to allow them to build this massive machine that is going to be kind of ready to go once Democrats finally have their nominee, whenever that is, really. And, mm-hmm. and so the idea on the Trump side is and you talk to people who are very close to the president. They say, look, uh, by the time Democrats finally have a nominee, we're going to have a massive organizational advantage. So when the president shows up in some of these early states where Democrats have primaries, right? He'll come in the weekend before or the day before and have these rallies. Is he doing this just to troll Democrats or is there a strategy one, he is doing this just to troll, uh, partly, and I think he's he's been kind of out front in saying that. he The president loves, of course, getting in the news cycle, and he can't really stand seeing other people suck up time and, and attention. So when Democrats have a primary in, in New Hampshire or, or somewhere else, uh, the president can't help but uh, go to that state the night before because he wants to see himself getting the headlines. He wants to see himself dominating not just the, no, the national coverage surrounding this event, but also the local coverage. So you'll see him getting a lot of local headlines when these rallies take place. But there is sort of a secondary purpose to this, which is the Trump campaign wants to ensure that its supporters are fired up and are engaged. Along with these rallies that they hold, there is a large sort of data operation the Trump campaign has set up to surround some of these rallies where people go in and they'll take their phone number uh, and they'll take other pieces of information. And then the campaign can go back to them later on this year to get donations and to ensure that they have their votes banked. So the strategy, Alex, is not necessarily to try to bring more or new people into the tent. It's just ensuring that everybody who would already be comfortable in that tent show up and vote, right? To, Finding to every extent, last one of those people. To, yeah. to a large extent, that, that that's true. I mean, you see Trump playing very much to his base. You're not seeing, at this point, a ton of efforts to expand outwards. There is some nuance to that, right? You are seeing some efforts. Uh, For example, with the African-American community, Trump got something like 8% of African-American voters in 2016, but his campaign uh, is making an effort this time around to win over black voters. And they believe that if Trump can get somewhere into the low to mid-teens, so not not a huge increase in terms of support, but a small increase in terms of black support, uh, the Trump campaign believes that they can make inroads in some of the key states that they're going to need uh, to be able to win. Their outreach to, to black voters uh, has sort of been 
one of the main ways in which they're trying to expand their coalition. But if you look at Trump's messaging and the kinds of things that he's saying and doing on a daily basis, he's very much playing to a lot of the same people that he play, that he's played to really for the last four or five years. That could be potentially a danger for him as he's seeking re-election. I know it's so interesting, Alex, because as I've w- been watching this outreach to the African-American community, we're seeing it in ads that the campaign is putting up, you know, you kind of wonder, okay, that seems like it's going to be not an easy thing for him to do. Maybe it would be easier for him to just, again, lean into an economic message and win back some of those suburban voters he lost in, or at least Republicans lost in 2018. It's a great point. And that challenge that he's going to face could be more pronounced, perhaps, as someone like Joe Biden is, is ends up being the Democratic nominee. Uh, why? Because if you look at how Biden has done uh, in recent primaries, how he's been able to rack up a bunch of primary wins is because Biden has done particularly well with really two groups of people. One, affluent sort of upscale suburbanites, and two, black voters. And so there is some concern among folks in the Trump camp that if they are indeed going to face Biden in the general election, this could be a real challenge for them. When you talk to the Trump campaign, who do they want to face, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden? Well, this is sort of the $64,000 question, right? On the one hand, there is some current concern about facing Biden. They think Biden uh, could could have a could sort of have a big map that he's someone who could play in a lot of different states, uh, not just the upper industrial Midwest, but also places like Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, uh, because there is a fear potentially that Biden has this wide appeal. Uh, people know who he is. Uh, people have sort of a favorable impression of him, and that he could play uh, particularly well. At the same time, though, there are people you talk to in the Trump camp who also acknowledge that Bernie Sanders could present some some challenges. You know, particularly there is a fear that if Bernie is out there, he could he could play particularly well in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Minnesota and other states that his sort of populist appeal could cut into Trump's pop populist appeal. However, you would, you know, just talking from them on a day-to-day basis, you really get the sense that they would rather face off against Bernie Sanders. They, The Trump campaign believes that if they can run against socialism, uh, that creates sort of an ideal contrast for them heading into November. Um, and while the campaign, while the reelection effort sort of sees, uh, believes or contends that they can sort of attach Biden to these social, these sort of liberal ideas, should he become the Democratic nominee? There's also a sense that that's just a little harder to do with mm-hmm. Biden. He's not really seen as the sort of uh, liberal, uh, progressive stalwart uh, the way that Bernie Sanders is. Is there any other state? I mean, we look at the Electoral College map, Alex, and you know, everyone talks about Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. You brought up the fact that states like North Carolina and Arizona are places that the Biden campaign may be able to make some inroads. But what about the Trump campaign? I've heard them talk a little bit about a place like New Mexico, but New Hampshire and Minnesota seem to be two places where they're also focusing. And those are two states that Hillary Clinton narrowly won in 2016. 
The Trump campaign definitely feels like they want to expand the map from the states they won in 2016. And, and Minnesota is a great example of a state where they want to make some inroads. You know, they kind of point out that if you compare Minnesota to Pennsylvania, there are a lot of similarities. If you look at both states, they, they both have some similarities. Trump ended up losing the urban urban areas in both states by far larger margins than traditional Republicans lose. But if you look at the sort of rural areas, he ended up winning those rural areas in both Minnesota and Pennsylvania by far larger margins than most Republicans do. Of course, the question is, and and this is a big one, is are there enough rural voters out there in Minnesota for Trump to win? Are the, is there going to be enough for him to sort of expand his base to make up for whatever uh, he would lose in the Twin Cities areas? And, that, and that's going to be his big challenge in this election. Alex Eisenstadt, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me about this. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway from WNYC and PRX in collaboration with WGBH Radio in Boston. Nearly every day, we're hearing about new confirmed cases of the coronavirus and of new statements from government officials about their plans for handling it. But the way the Trump administration is able to handle this crisis will largely depend on the decisions it has made about public health over the last three years. And now that all eyes are on the Trump administration's public health response, there's real concern from inside and outside the White House that President Trump is more concerned with messaging and optics than with providing transparent information and services. For more on this, I'm joined by Yasmin Abutalib, health policy reporter at The Washington Post. Yasmin, let's take a step back. In February of 2018, the CDC shrank its epidemic prevention activities around the world by 80 percent. So who was responsible for this cut? The Trump administration or was it Congress? The Trump administration shrunk the CDC's global epidemic disease prevention efforts by 80 percent. And that was efforts the CDC had in about 49 countries to try to detect global disease outbreaks before they grew out of control. And typically in countries with less robust disease prevention programs in the United States. So, you know, it it actually included China. And the administration cut that budget by about 80 percent. So in 39 out of 49 of the countries that the CDC was conducting that program in. Congress this week passed a funding bill to tackle the coronavirus. What can you tell us about that? What is in there and what is it designed to do? So Congress ended up appropriating much more than the administration asked for. The administration had asked for $2.5 billion to fight coronavirus, but about half of that would have been money moved around from existing funds. And there was bipartisan agreement that that was not enough money, that was not sufficient, and for the most part, lawmakers did not want to move money from other 
public health priorities like fighting Ebola to now fight coronavirus. So that funding bill includes money for vaccine and therapeutics because we don't have a treatment for coronavirus right now, um, for more testing, for protective equipment, basically all the things that, you know, experts laid out uh, that you would need to fight a global epidemic like this. So Vice President Pence now, the president tapped him as the person sort of in charge of all of this. From your reporting, what's the understanding of how he's doing in this job, especially according to health experts and officials? I think people have seen the administration take some steps in the last week that they wish they had taken several weeks ago, you know, steps to scale up diagnostic testing so that you can identify more coronavirus cases that a lot of experts think have been circulating in communities for for probably several weeks now, um, you know, mobilizing different parts of the government. So I think in that way, people are, are, are probably happy with what they've seen. But, you know, I think there also is a desire to hear daily from doctors, from scientists. And you do see that. You see the vice president brings the doctors on stage with him. But there definitely has been a fear that politics and sort of um, public relations crisis messaging has conflicted with a public health crisis. And my colleagues and I reported earlier in the week that the White House was treating this as a public relations crisis as much as a public health crisis. They're demanding message discipline of everyone involved in the response from political appointees to government scientists and and doctors. And I think there are a lot of people who want people like Tony Fauci of the NIH to to speak freely and not worry about staying on message about, you know, what the threat is and what Americans need to be prepared for. Well, this this seems to be pretty consistent theme of this White House, which is there are things that are going on and policies implemented and people doing things. And then there's what the president himself says tweets, talks about publicly. The president the other day was on Sean Hannity and talked about he doesn't think this is going to be as bad as some people are saying, and maybe people aren't as sick as we think they'll be. So is it your expectation that we're going to see this split screen continue then throughout this this time where we may be seeing real work getting done on the public health side and the work that the folks are doing under uh, Vice President Pence's uh, leadership, but the president may be saying something completely different. I do think we'll see that for a while because we've seen since this first started playing out and since the U.S. started seeing its first cases, the president has sought to play it down and to say it's not that big a deal. We've got it fully contained. And even in the early days, you still had maybe less dramatic of a split screen, but there was still a split screen. Uh, you had President Trump, who, who didn't want to talk about it much in general. And when he did said it's not a big deal, it's fully under control. And you had the health professional saying, you know, it's the the risk remains low, but we do expect to see more cases. Um, and we even saw that playing out last week when we started seeing the first community transmission cases. And I don't think it's a secret that the president is, is very worried about the sort of existential threat that this public health crisis could pose to his reelection, given its impact on the economy the last several weeks. And I think his his desire is to sort of say, you know, a vaccine is, is right around the corner. And you've mm. seen someone like... Um, 
Anthony Fauci have to correct him in real time and say, actually, best case scenario, it's a year away. And, you know, the president in a, in a meeting with pharmaceutical executives said something like, I like the, the answer of a couple of months better. Um, and, and then an interview saying, you know, yeah, maybe we'll see more cases, but it's not that big a deal. Um, and that's mm-hmm. different from the, from the message his public health professionals and even Vice President Pence are sending, which is, you know, mm-hmm. sh- sure, maybe the, the, the threat remains low to, to, the, to Americans in general, but we do expect to see more cases. They're not unrealistic in saying, you know, we think we're going to stamp this out immediately. And do you think that has a chilling effect ultimately for public health officials I think what we've seen is the, the the public health professionals have been determined to to do their jobs and to get honest information to to the American public. But you know, I think it it can be quite nerve wracking when you have an administration that is so focused on staying on message. And you know, we reported earlier this week that in an interview, Tony Fauci told an NBC Nightly News correspondent that this was an outbreak that would reach likely pandemic proportions. And um, the White House officials overseeing the response were irritated that he had used the word pandemic without giving them a heads up. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that that might put some professionals on edge. You know, they, they want to speak scientifically and to the facts. But if they're worried about, you know, if they veer off message or if they haven't pre-cleared something, that might restrain people a bit in what they feel they can or cannot say in public. That's Yasmin Abutalib, health policy reporter for The Washington Post. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. On Super Tuesday, many voters of color were forced to wait hours to vote in places like Texas, where polling places lacked the machines needed to handle the heavy voting traffic. But even before Super Tuesday, polling sites in Texas were closing in Black and Latino neighborhoods, and voter rolls in Georgia and Wisconsin were being purged. Many politicians and civil rights leaders say this is a modern form of voter suppression. And the assumption has been that the federal government's ability to curb voter suppression comes from the Voting Rights Act, which was effectively gutted back in 2013. But if we want to talk about addressing voter suppression, we need to go back, way back, to the 14th Amendment, which was instituted after the Civil War to protect the civil rights of African Americans after the abolition of slavery. Joshua Geltzer is the executive director and visiting professor of law at Georgetown's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. And he told me there are 110 words in the 14th Amendment that have largely been lost to history. When the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for president and vice president of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state, being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States, or in any way abridged, except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. I started by asking him what did that language mean for states at the time it was being written? What does it mean for voting rights today? So this is supposed to be a penalty. You, you, you put this amendment exactly in the right context. We're after the Civil War, trying to make good on what the, the North fought the Civil War for. And this is the penalty. If a state suppresses voting, 
it's going to lose representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. And in particular, it's going to lose a, a, a representation in the House proportionate to the percentage of those people in its state who've lost that right, that to, right vote. to vote. Exactly. Now, we know, of course, we move into Reconstruction and into Jim Crow, and it's pretty clear that the right to vote for many people who had citizenship, who were able to vote, it was denied to them. So why did no one raise this 110-word piece and say, wait a minute, it says in the amendment that you can't do this. And if you do, following states, you should be losing members of your uh, delegation. So the idea seems to have been a sound one, but it's really underspecified. The amendment doesn't say who does this, what the standards are, how they go about figuring this out, either when the suppression occurs, how much suppression. It doesn't even talk about the mechanisms for reducing that, uh, that voting in the House. So you have the 14th Amendment getting ratified in 1868, 1870 rolls around. And just as you say, there's already a bunch of concerns that the fears uh, reflected in this provision uh, are indeed being carried out, that there's suppression of voting. And as 1870 brings the ninth census to the United States, there are those in Congress who want to try to make good on this provision and who begin going down the road of trying to gather the information one might need to assess whether this penalty should be applied to some states. And it, it doesn't work out. Uh, people in Congress fight about how to go about it. That's I'd describe as the last real attempt, 1870, to try to do something through Congress with this. So if we fast forward to the 1960s and the Voting Rights Act, it does not exactly follow these 110 words, but the Voting Rights Act did say there are going to be penalties to states for denying the right to vote uh, of your citizens. So was that a good stand-in then for this 110-word piece of the amendment? It was marching us down a road that seemed to be improving until you get to 2013. And the Supreme Court comes along, declares unconstitutional the coverage formula of a key section of the Voting Rights Act. But really what they did was gut that act. Part of the reason the Supreme Court gave in 2013 for saying this provision was no longer needed was, look at all this data. We have turnout. We have participation in the process. So it worked. the Voting Rights Act worked. Did it work, though? There were still problems. The Voting Rights Act and even the, the best form of its implementation and enforcement hadn't taken care of the scourge of, of voting suppression in this country. Indeed, even in 2013, and part of what made that decision so astonishing to, to, to many of us who were concerned by it, is that it seemed we were on the upswing of at least attempts to find new ways to suppress the vote. And what we've seen and what we were already seeing in 2013 were newer tactics, such as closure of polling places, even worse, last-minute closure of polling places. So it would, I think, be, be too rosy-eyed a, a view mm -hmm. to look back and say that with the Voting Rights Act in full sing swing, so to speak, all was well. There was still room for putting more pressure on states, and this provision, I think, could have been could part have of done that. that. So now it's been seven years since that decision was handed down. Why have we not seen lawsuits brought up referring to the 14th Amendment clause? I think litigants who've tried in the past, a little bit like Congress when it tried in the past, aren't quite sure what to 
do with it. And、mm-hmm. courts have not been hospitable to those challenges. Courts have been reluctant. They've found somewhat different reasons. As I mentioned, one time it was the Voting Rights Act is new. Maybe it will take care of things.、Mm-hmm. Other times, the court's response have been you personally haven't suffered. The harm that would be required to give you what the courts call standing to to proceed with this challenge. Instead, it seems that for、uh, citizens, elected officials, anyone, quite frankly, who's interested in voter suppression, is that they seem to focus specifically maybe on one thing: early voting, closing polling places, purging voter rolls. Is that what you think the future will hold? Then, state by state. The current trajectory is, as you say, it's taking them one by one. North Carolina is a great example of this, where litigants have gone in, challenged different things from voter ID laws. The state legislature, when they have lost those cases, have turned around and said, "Here's a new version. Take us to court. Let's have months of litigation." People have taken them up on that invitation. They've prevailed, and the legislature tries again.、Uh, it's important to keep doing that, to keep、um, striking down what's. Unconstitutional or otherwise unlawful, it's also very time and resource intensive to keep bringing those、mm. sorts of suits. So there is this, and there is the possibility, at a minimum, of a Congress ordering the executive branch to do the work that it's really never done, which is to go out and try to figure out the voting suppression that at least might yield the sort of reduction that this clause had in mind. So for now, what does it look like? Going into 2020, what are you seeing, as it were, in states, state legislatures, that are addressing this issue of voter suppression? There's one big picture effort going on right now that's critical because it doesn't just affect voting in 2020, but actually affects a whole decade to come, and that's the effort to ensure that people do participate in the decennial census, because. Even though the Trump administration failed in its effort to add a citizenship question that even the Census Bureau said would diminish the bureau's ability to achieve that constitutional goal of, a, of a, achieving an actual enumeration, the damage, in a sense, has been partly done just by the push to add it. It has made communities wary of something that nobody should be scared of. People should see the decennial census as. Uh, critical to our democracy. I mean, that is the foundation for how seats in the House and therefore votes in the Electoral College are constituted for a whole decade. So, one big picture effort is encouraging participation, no matter what people have heard, no matter what fights people have seen、uh, fought over the past months and years. They need to participate in that across communities if they want voting in this country for a decade to come to reflect those communities. Well, Josh Geltzer, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. Thank you for the invitation. Joshua Geltzer is the executive director and visiting professor of law at Georgetown's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. That's all for us today. The show was produced by Amber Hall and Andres O'Hara with help from Alexandra Boti. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our engineer. Polly Rungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our administrative assistant. Katerina Barton is our intern, and our executive producer is Lee Hill. You can call us anytime at eight seven seven eight My Take or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E Walter, and the show is at the Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on the Takeaway. What's up with our elections in 
Why do some states caucus and others don't? Who gets to be a delegate? And yes, everyone goes crazy about Super Tuesday, but what is it and why is it so important? I'm Amy Walter, host of How to Vote in America, a new podcast from WNYC Studios. Every episode, we'll tackle one element of this long and twisted election process and try to make sense of what it actually takes to vote in this country. Listen to How to Vote in America wherever you get your podcasts.